ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Where you live, what does it feel like to be on the streets? Is it rumbling with busy traffic on big highways? Do you think kids feel safe riding to school? Do you have buses or trains that get you to where you need to go when you need to get there? Hi, it's Natasha Mitchell with Big Ideas. Life in Australia's regional towns is pretty much all about the car. And cars are just so convenient, aren't they? Especially when things are spread out or public transport is chug-a-lug. But transport accounts for a staggering quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions, according to the International Energy Agency, and cars are a big part of that total. So what would it actually take for a regional town to lead the way and come up with a zero emissions transport system by 2030? Seven years. Get real, you say. Well, three leaders in rethinking cities and transport joined me recently on that very question at the Bendigo Climate Summit. So let's head to central Victoria on Jajawarang and Tangarang country. And this is a discussion that's relevant to the big smoke too. What we're noticing with cities all around the world, Paris has just done this, Odense, Oslo, there there are cities all around the world where they're saying, look, we need to make a trade-off and I'm going to be very controversial here. That trade-off is parking, car parking. So I'm going to guess that uh, amongst our audience here, when you're living in a regional city or town, you would expect when you drive to go to the shop or the doctor or the library or the school, you kind of expect that you're going to be able to park right outside the front door. And that comes at a massive cost. When we put that parking right up front and say we cannot lose any of it, what you're doing is you're literally voting with your feet. You're saying it does not matter to me that my kids need to be able to walk to school. It does not matter to me that teenagers can't get around without being driven. The panel, Sarah Stace, is a city shaper, urban planner and director of cities with the consultancy firm WSP Global. Elliot Fishman is founder of the consultancy The Sensible Transport Institute. Both Australians are internationally renowned for their innovative thinking and projects. Peter Burke advocates for bike riding at the national level as executive officer with We Ride Australia, locally with Bike Bendigo and as general manager of Bicycle Industry. Australia. Just a really quick fire response to why this is an essential conversation to be having. Why would we be thinking about zero transport emissions for a regional town like Bendigo by, say, 2030, 2035, let's hope by 2050? Sarah? I think there are a few factors that we want to take into account. One of those is climate, which is why we're here. But the other ones are health and the environment generally, so pollution. When we talk about health, that's probably one of the major reasons because there are study after study globally and in Australia that show that when people live healthy, active lives, and generally uh, walking or riding for recreation is good, but it's even better if it's incidental exercise as you're walking to the shops and so on. But that has major health benefits and can extend your life by, you know, two to five years. It reduces mortality, reduces risk of diabetes, heart disease, dementia and so on. So it's actually personally good for everybody. It's good for you. This is a good start. Do we do things that are good for us all the time, though? That's an interesting question. Elliot, what about you? 
Yeah, well, look, I think in addition to all the reasons that Sarah mentioned, I think one of the main things that we often forget is that the reason we live in cities and the reason we live in townships right across Australia is because humans enjoy interaction with other humans. That's why cities came about, you know, 12 or 18,000 years ago, social interaction, economic interaction. And when you have communities and transport systems that prioritise people and place, it's of huge importance in terms of the success of cities and making it a city that people want to go to because in this post-COVID era, people can move about and uh, work remotely and so people are going to choose places to live. So creating a city where walking, cycling and public transport becomes the first choice rather than car use being the only choice is something that is going to be increasingly valuable in the future. We've, we've leapt to the solution, but the problem that we're trying to solve is the question of getting transport down to zero emissions. What's the imperative there? Well, we need to do a lot of things fast because in actual fact, we should have been doing this 20 years ago and we've really only just started now. So we've started far too late. To give you an idea of the scale of the challenge that we've got, even if every single car that was purchased from tomorrow onwards in Australia was electric and zero emission, we still wouldn't meet our 2030 emissions targets, the national target of 43% reduction emissions by 2030 because there are so many cars in our fleet their internal combustion engine, and people hold on to their cars for about 15 to 20 years. So we've got this huge problem, and we're going to overshoot our emissions in transport by a long way, and that's why we need to look at not just the challenge of shifting internal combustion engine cars to electric, but also what can we do to bring public transport to be a more attractive choice and for walking and cycling to be prioritised, especially for trips that are zero to five kilometres. And most trips in Australian townships are under five kilometres, and a lot of people are surprised by that. So even though we're a big country, a lot of our trips every day are very short, short enough to do by walking or cycling if the environment was safe enough and attractive enough to compel people to do that. Yes, and we'll interrogate the question of electric vehicles. They're certainly part of the solution, a vital part of the solution, but they're not a panacea, and that's a really interesting uh, set of questions to explore. Peter Burke, what about you? What's the imperative? You're a hardcore cyclist. Uh, you love biking, but this is part of a bigger, a bigger story for you too. Uh, absolutely. And I'll just come back to your comment about I'm the hardcore cyclist. Uh, yeah, sorry. Which is actually a really interesting <laughs> question. I do ride the K and a half to school and kinder with my children. If you call that a hardcore cyclist, I'm happy to be called that. Um, but uh, Good point. But yes, yeah, so to me, and, and on that, anyone who rides a bike to me is a, is a bike rider. And in COVID, there was 11 million people who said they rode a bike uh, during COVID, the year of COVID. So it's not an extreme activity. It is just, as Sarah has pointed out, a day-to-day -day activity that we need to be focusing on. But one, to, to come back to the question about why we need to do this, it's also about equity and equality. It's about providing an opportunity for everybody in your city to be able to get to where they need to get to. That is the shop and that is the chemist, that is the um, school. But it's providing those solutions so that everybody, they don't have to have a car, they have an opportunity to get to where they need to go. And one of the things that's really scary about this discussion, and Elliot mentioned that we've, uh, we're 20 years behind already, we've known the solutions for years. Whether that's public transport, whether that's public uh, active travel, we've known that we need to be moving down this path for a long time. So active travel like biking, walking, 
scootering. Anything that gets the body moving to, to get you to your destination. We've known that we need to invest in these and it's just a case of we need to have, for the leadership, we need to have that investment to actually provide the solutions to provide access to the choices. Some people need to drive, there is no question about that, but there's a lot of people that don't, but they don't feel safe to do something else, so we need to provide the choices to access where they need to go in their local community. Yes, the safety question is an interesting one. Sarah, Stace, a lot of people say, and in fact, I, I gather that 30% of peak hour traffic in Bendigo is people dropping their children or picking up their children from school. And one of the reasons that parents do that is that they don't feel it's safe for their children either to travel to school on other modes of transport like the bike or walking. Uh, it's also efficient to get to, to school in a car with, you know, a busy morning, got to get the kids to school that way. Is that, is that kind of a vicious circle? Because, in fact, the more people who do that, the more cars there are on the road, less safe the roads are for kids. Yeah, it's a, definitely an, an unvirtuous circle. There's a few factors at play there. There's one, uh, you talked about efficiency. The local school that my kids go to, in fact, there's very little parking outside the school. There's certainly none in the school. And so, in fact, families have switched to riding the cargo bike. So um, I've got one as well. You just pop the kids on the back. You can fit two or three kids and you ride down to the school and drop them off. So, and then you can continue on to work. And at no point did you have to worry about bus timetables or parking. So from an efficiency point of view, there are alternatives, but there also have to be some disincentives, like it's hard to park. So that's one aspect. I think the other one that we need to think about is what does that teach our children? So if kids are growing up and they're walking or riding to school when it's you know safe for them to do so, perhaps in their teenage years, they are learning a lifelong habit. And so when, you, when we're continuing to drop them off at school right through their years, when do they learn? When are they going to um, break free from the shackles of the seatbelt? So I think that's really important for us to consider. It's actually about our kids' freedom. Right up until they're 17 or 18, children can't drive. And likewise, as people approach, you know, into their senior years, they want to be driving less and less and at some point need to give up their licence. And so when we create a city and suburbs that force you to drive, you're then forcing all those people into their homes or needing to rely on others. And from an equity point of view, the average car ownership is about $10,000 a year. That's according to Australian government statistics. The cost. The cost, that includes the car purchase and depreciation, insurance, um, tolls, parking, petrol. So when you add all of those up, that's a lot of money. Let's just consider Bendigo now and Bendigo in the future. Around 122,000 people own 82,000 cars in Bendigo. A fifth of Bendigo households have three or more cars. No shame in this, I'm totally car dependent, I have to agree. Uh, but 2050, let's think about where we're heading in Bendigo. The projected population increase is upwards of 200,000 by 2050. Uh, if the car ownership trends continue, that's 140,000 cars in 2050. So that's a, a lot of cars, a lot of traffic, a lot of car parks, a lot of cars sitting sedentary in car parks in the city because most people drive their cars to work in Bendigo as well. And this is the story of regional towns across Australia. Uh, so, so what does that mean for a city's vibe, a city's relationships. 
Elliot. Well, it's difficult to think of a city that has lots and lots of surface car parking that is also a really vibrant, people oriented place that is fun to walk around and, and be in. So when you think of a, a place, um, obvious example that a lot of transport planners use is a, a city like Houston in Texas where something like 50 percent of all urban land is actually car parking. And a lot of Australian cities aren't that different because cars occupy a huge amount of space and they sit idle 96% of the time. So they're just sitting there and when you've got large swathes of car park, you can't get a successful people-orientated, vibrant township and have a lot of car parking in the centre of that town. Those two things uh, don't work together. What we need to start doing is creating a public transport system that makes it easier for people to be able to get into those townships for work without the need to always use the car. So it's about finding the right tool for the job. So sometimes the car is going to be by far and away the best option for you. So if you're going on a road trip, it's in the or country. Or you're going about your business. Yeah. So if you're a plumber or an electrician or something and you really are dependent on a car, the car is the right tool for the job. But if you're a single occupant person taking a three kilometre trip to the office, transport systems should be able to provide a better option for you so you don't need to do that. And then that makes it easier for those that do need to use their car. So uh, you can move around the city more easily, do more jobs, uh, find a car park more easily. So it's about creating a system that diversifies transport options so that people can choose the right tool for the transport job that they've got at hand. Okay, Elliot Fishman just mentioned public transport. I'm going to do a quick survey of the auditorium here. Who catches public transport in Bendigo? Hands up. Okay, that's a definite minority in the room. Who catches a bus? Yes, probably the same people. What about the train? Oh, lots. Inside Bendigo? No to get to Melbourne, to get to Castlemaine, etc. Yeah, so public transport, Peter Burke, you're the local. Are you a regular user of public transport? Uh, unfortunately, I have to admit on this one, I've never been inside a bus, in, uh, a Bendigo <gasps> bus. I, I am a train user to Melbourne, but coming back to the regional centres, you, you fall back into the natural habit of the car, I can get anywhere I want to get to at any time, even if it is just at 500 metres down the road to get some milk. So the public transport, the, the bus system, it, uh, to, for two things. Uh, Describe it for us. Yeah, it wouldn't be as efficient as I would like it to be for my needs. And to be perfectly honest, it's not something that I've ever actually considered because it's not the norm in our current city. So my social networks don't describe using the bus, so therefore it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It doesn't exist in my mind as an option to get to where I want to go. We've, I have and that's probably the reality for a lot of people. Elliot Fishman from the Sensible Transport Institute, you're raising your eyebrows yeah. about public transport. I, I think there's a thing that happens, it happens in Bendigo, but it happens in lots of regional cities and it actually happens in some of the larger metropolitan cities as well. And, and that's, it's, a, it's an accounting trick where the transport department have said, well, we want to increase the proportion of households that have access to a bus that are within, say, 100 metres or 200 metres of a bus route. And so what they do then is rather than running more bus routes, they simply change the bus routes so that they become more circuitous and run down really small local streets and meander through suburbs. And the problem with that is that even though you meet your metric of 80% of households living within 
100 metres of a bus route, the problem is those bus routes then, instead of taking, say, 15 minutes to get from people's origin to destination, now take 50 minutes. No, it's like going on a grand epic adventure just to get to work. Exactly. And so then people make their choice based on convenience and speed and uh, and cost. And what they'll compare is a 10-minute car trip to a 50-minute bus trip and they'll pick the car every time if they've got that option available to them. And most people do, and so most people use the car. And that, that's the problem of being tricky with the accounting and trying to rejig your bus route to, to be so close to everyone's home. You end up creating a system that only appealed to a very small number of people. Just to paint the picture for, for people beyond the room, Bendigo does have a train line. It, it connects Bendigo to the nearby Goldfields town here in central Victoria to Castlemaine and then on to Melbourne. And there are some stops in Bendigo. Uh, there's also a massive four-lane highway that kind of runs from one side of Bendigo to the other, from Kangaroo Flat to Epsom. Are there options here for creating a a, a thriving public transport option or series of options. We've got some great questions coming through from the audience. So, and these are our prompts. What about electric buses are being built in Brisbane and Adelaide? What is stopping us ordering some this year? Bus companies need federal, state and local support and laws. So what about a rapid transit bus system? That's often held up as a, a fantastic option. Sarah. This week I was going through some suburbs in Sydney, not right in the centre, and uh, heading down towards the port area, so not a, not a hugely high-density area. We were able to just hop on, hop on and off buses that were express buses. There's no timetable because it is literally a turn-up-and-go system. So every four to ten minutes they got there, it is guaranteed there's going to be a bus. Imagine. It, the electric bus is nice, but it's not going to solve those problems. In this case, they've completely re-timetabled all of the buses in the area and you now know that you're going to have these bus routes that is going to turn up and go and it wasn't even the same route we actually combined a few different routes together so you can just wander off go and have a coffee come back to the bus stop catch the next one it was just amazing so it can be done Peter Newman, the transport guru in uh, Western Australia, is a great fan of uh, what are called trackless trams, essentially fancy electric buses, aren't they? And uh, uh, and you could imagine in a town like Bendigo that you would have you could have a trackless tram running down that kind of central highway. Uh, could that work, Elliot Fishman? Trackless trams, it's a little bit like a, a laser-guided bus. Uh, so it's still a bus, um, but a laser-guided bus. And the key thing is providing a dedicated right of way. So they don't, uh, they're not stuck in general traffic lanes. They have their own dedicated lane. And that's critical because what it does is increase transport reliability in terms of the, the speed that the bus can go. So it can stick to a timetable, doesn't get caught up in the, in the local traffic issues that, that motor vehicles will. So it's got to be high frequency and it's got to have a dedicated right of way. But the dedicated right of way brings up a really difficult problem for a lot of cities, not just regional cities, but also capital cities. And that is how to allocate road space to different modes of transport because at the moment over 95% of our road space is dedicated to motor vehicles and almost all of our trips that take place in cities and regional towns are by private passenger vehicles. There's a lot of competing tensions around that space and if you take away a motor vehicle traffic lane and give it over to a dedicated bus lane, there'll be some people that will argue, well that will increase congestion. But what we need to do, and this is not a, a position that I expect many people in the audience will agree with, 
We need to forget about the idea of solving congestion. We're never going to solve congestion. And if we put in policies that try and solve congestion, you'll actually increase your chances of getting congestion because it dedicates so much transport resources to one particular mode of transport, the motor vehicle. So trackless trams, I think, would be a really good idea in regional cities, and you, but you need to run them regularly enough to provide a compelling value proposition so that people feel confident that they can leave their cars at home or perhaps even getting to 18 or 19 years old, which has typically been a rite of passage to go and then buy a car and then you use that car for almost every trip to actually have the confidence to turn 18 and not buy a car. And that's really the, the sign of, of success that, that city planners have been, been able to create a transport system that is diversified enough that it isn't so reliant on just one particular mode of transport. I want to come to electric vehicles because a lot of you are asking questions about electric vehicles. We're seeing incredibly interesting trends in electric vehicles in the last couple of years. A seventh of cars sold in the world were electric vehicles in 2022. That compares to one in 70 cars sold uh, being electric vehicles back in 2017. That's not that long ago. Last year, 14% of all new cars sold were electric in the world. There's been a 60% increase in China. Uh, in Europe, more than one in five cars sold now are electric. In the USA, an increase of 55% in electric vehicles being sold. In Australia, 4% of cars sold were electric vehicles. Let's start with affordability. Connor has asked, knowing that a Victoria is living in an economic crisis, how can we make electric vehicles more affordable to the public? Elliot Fishman. Yep, so electric vehicles will become more affordable to the public for two principal reasons. One is that the cost of production is decreasing. And so when, because most of the cost of an electric car, or at least around half the cost of electric car is actually the battery. So you need quite a big battery. It's um, usually about 60 kilowatt hours or so, 60 to 70 kilowatt hours. So as the cost comes down from manufacturing, because of economies of scale, where you've got big car manufacturers starting to retool their factories in order to provide a higher rate of electric vehicle production, that will bring down the cost. But also as vehicles come onto the second-hand market, because only about 50% of vehicles sold are, are new vehicles. A lot of them are second-hand vehicles. Most people, a lot of people, go their whole life never buying a new vehicle outright. They'll uh, buy second-hand vehicles. And so as fleets usually hold their vehicles for between three and five years, then they put them onto the second-hand market. So buying a second-hand electric vehicle will become more available and more affordable. So that That's absolutely key, though, isn't it? Because I've never bought a new car. I will never buy a new car. I've never spent more than, I don't know, probably about $7,000 on a car. And I keep cars for 15 years. I know I'm a climate liability right there. I do have an e-bike. But, but this is a reality. People cannot afford new cars. They need to be, we need to see the secondhand market being flooded with affordable electric vehicles. Do you imagine a future where that might happen? Yes, and that's already starting to happen. So if you look at the number of secondhand electric vehicles a year ago uh, on you know, carsales.com or something like that, it was only you know, maybe 200 uh, vehicles. And now that's 
dramatically increased. Uh, so people that bought electric vehicles in 2014 and 15 are selling them on the second-hand market and buying a new one because you can get a lot more for your money today than you could four or five years ago. But also a lot of state government and local government fleets are now, uh, they've got procurement uh, goals of creating a zero emission fleet by 2030. So that means that most of the vehicles that they're going to need to buy by about 2024, 2025 are going to have to be EV. And when they come onto the second-hand market, you just get this massive uh, flow of more affordable vehicles. So I think that that will happen. In terms of state subsidies, I, th I think we're starting to see a reduction in the need for them. So places like Norway, which has now 88% of all new vehicles sold in Norway are electric, so they're by far and away the, the world leader. And Norway has also banned petrol cars by 2035. Yes, that's right. And there are a number of European countries that have done that. I think the ACT have said that they're going to ban the sale of new petrol or diesel cars by 2035. And they actually have 21% of all new vehicles sold in the ACT were electric. And that's partly because of the huge government fleets that are there. So it says something about the way in which this is moving, that so many uh, government fleets are now shifting towards EV, that you can get one in five new cars sold in the ACT being EV already. An interesting question here from the audience. Are you worried the new guilt-free electric car will increase car usage in kilometres? And this is an issue, this rebound effect, isn't it? That a person might say, oh, I've got an electric vehicle, I'm, I'm fine climate-wise. So That is real, and I know that it's real because my family have recently purchased an electric vehicle and now when we take my daughter to soccer training on a rainy Thursday night uh, in Melbourne we'll be much more likely to drive than we would have before. We would always leave our car at home ah. for those sorts of trips. Now there's this idea, well, it's emissions-free, so we'll just use it. So if my family are doing that, I suspect that other families might think about that as well. We clearly need more electric vehicle infrastructure and, uh, you know, there is a call for 100% of us to be driving electric vehicles at some point. Uh, Peter Burke, though, more electric vehicles and more people uh, deciding that, well, no, I don't need to walk or uh, I, I can just take my EV to the supermarket. What does that mean for you as a bike rider? Uh, absolutely, and it is it is a concern because it's not necessarily more electric vehicles, it's just more vehicles in general because if we're replacing an internal combustion engine or an ICE engine with a, an electric vehicle, it's still a vehicle. It doesn't matter whether it's an EV and energy efficient, it, it'll still hurt if you get hit by a, a car. Yeah, so yeah. It, it doesn't change the safety element, it doesn't change the uh, health benefits, it doesn't change congestion, it just simply changes the level of emissions that are being produced on that individual trip. And God help us when uh, driverless electric vehicles become a norm. Uh, yeah, well, that's a whole nother philosophical debate. Driverless cars are certainly something that uh, will have an impact on walking and cycling. I just want to add one other quick thing on. Elliot mm -hmm. mentioned that the price, a big component of the price of a car is a battery. One stat that always gels in my head is of the 40,000 e-vehicles uh, e sold last year, they have the same level of batteries as if we produce 7 million e-bikes for Australia. So 40,000 cars, six to seven million e-bikes. So we could actually have, you know, an e-bike e uh, in three years, those cars could give an e-bike to everyone in Australia. So they do, uh, they take a lot of energy to produce, a lot of energy for that battery, and we do have other solutions that we could use with that. E-bikes are phenomenal. I think I could become an evangelist for e-bikes. I, I just have a really little cheap one that's a 
fold up, it's entry level, it's not waterproof, that's how cheap it was. It, it just is a revelation to me, actually. <laughs> it's so much fun to ride. That's the key for me. To, just to add to that, is, and you've made a really relevant point, e-bikes are fantastic for transport, they're, they're really good for your health because you still get health benefits, but the key we hear over and over again is that they are fun. And when half the trips in Bendigo or regional centres are less than four and a half Ks, an e-bike will generally get you there in the same time frame as a car, but you'll have fun doing it. It's fun. Sarah Stace, it's fun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, Arian has asked, do you agree that there is stigma around bike riders? In my experience, many drivers hate cyclists. Now, this is an interesting question to ask because we're talking about infrastructure, but we're also talking about uh, cultural change, social change, and a change of minds, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's a vexed question. We actually um, uh, try and avoid using the word cyclist because it carries a lot of associations with your mammal riders. That's your uh, middle-aged men in Lycra. And, and it's cool. So we, if you are a middle-aged man in Lycra, you just, you do you. You know, I'm, I don't consider myself a cyclist at all, but I do ride a bicycle every day to go from A to B. I don't even ride a bike recreationally. I just, for me, it's just a tool to get from one point to another. So I think that, that often that framing is really important. I'd say that when we're designing for cycling infrastructure... In the past, we have tended to think that putting a bike logo in the middle of a road is enough, but it's not. When we are designing cycleways, we really need to be thinking about a 12-year-old being able to ride a bicycle by themselves on that infrastructure. That's, that's kind of the standard that we want to be doing. And that's because um, in Victoria and New South Wales up until quite recently, I think, um, we required that a 12-year-old must ride on the road. They can't ride on a footpath. Uh, it's 13 in Victoria. So, um, and what parent would let their 13-year-old ride on a, a busy main road these days? I, I mean, we all did it when we were kids, but, you know, life was different then. I have a 13-year-old and, uh, yeah, he's not ready. So, um, but then in, in four years' time, he's going to be able to get a driver's licence and drive a car. Eek. Here we are in a low-density city, Bendigo, central Victoria. Uh, I think something like 2% of people ride bikes regularly or daily. I can't remember the exact figure now. 0.9% of people in Bendigo say they use the bike to get to work. That's only for trips 0. to work. 0.9%. Yeah. We'll come back to this, but in a town like Groningen in, in the Netherlands, uh, which has 200,000 people, and that's what Bendigo is projected to have in 2050, 60% of people use bikes daily. So I think that's fascinating. But Peter Burke, Bikes are your thing. And Fee has asked, I would prefer to use a bike or scooter, but I don't feel safe on the road. Bike lanes end right where you need the most, just as you enter the centre of town. And then also someone's written, bike paths are not family friendly when they cross major roads with no pedestrian crossings. So two vital questions here about the safety, the accessibility of cycling in this city. We know that people would like to ride. We've quite often put in the infrastructure where it's easy to do, but the moment we're challenged, and whether that's taking out parking or prioritising active transport, walking, riding over the private motor vehicle, quite often we, the road engineer or anyone else is either forced to or makes the decision to prioritise a motor vehicle over a bike rider or a walker. And we also know that 
a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So the moment that we have a missing piece of infrastructure, it cancels the trip. We know that. Uh, Bendigo did a survey, I think it was two years ago, um, and focusing on uh, women's perceptions of cycling. Five, I think it was 5% of women were comfortable riding on the road with no infrastructure. 20% were comfortable riding on the road with white painted bike lanes. So we've got 80% of the population, the female population in Bendigo, that is un, unwilling to ride on a painted bike lane. Dr. It's, it's not enough, is it, to just have a painted bike lane, as there is on the main stretch in and out of Bendigo? Absolutely. And Bendigo has got, I think it's about 400 kilometres of bike lanes. In reality, out of 400 kilometres, we've got about 50 kilometres of separated bike lane. Uh, Dr. Ben Beck from Monash University made a paper two years ago that said that uh, why do painted bike lanes are almost worse than not having bike lanes at all because of the way cars treat people in that. So in I just saw a car swerve into a bike lane. They were going straight ahead, but they just did a little swerve into a bike lane and swerve out again. Yeah, and the staff here have done some amazing work on developing the plans for the bike lane. Bendigo has amazing plans for safe, connected networks that get people where they want to go. I think the plan would be 95% uh, of the population will be within 500 metres of a separated bike lane. It takes money, it takes leadership, and it takes courage for the political leaders to actually do that. And all political leaders are faced with the decision about, do I go for a something that is good or do I go for something that is popular in the short term? And just one comment I will make also about Groningen. Um, the Netherlands, everybody thinks that the Netherlands is a cycling mecca. In the 1970s, it was moving to a car culture until the population made an active decision that they wanted to actually have a solution that supported women and men, supported children, a it was a transport solution, it was a life solution. It wasn't a decision to ride bikes, it was a transport solution that they invested in. Interesting. They invest 19 euro per person per year in the major centres. If we don't make these decisions, if we, whether it's health, whether it's congestion, whether it's environment, if we don't make these changes, if we don't move to trackless trams or we don't provide road space for the moving people, not just moving private motor vehicles, cities such as Bendigo will suffer economically. Let's unpack that further. Sarah Stace. The Chinese government is investing a lot in cycling infrastructure. So historically, the Chinese cities have uh, used to have a lot of bike riding probably 30 or 40 years ago. And then they uh, very much pushed that away. They were like, oh, actually, you know, these bikes are blocking cars from driving. We're going to invest a lot in building roads and building train lines, particularly metro. But then they've come to realise that that represents a major spatial challenge because if everybody's in their big, large car, that has a real geometric problem. Where do you fit all these cars? And then also, how do people get to the metro station? Just like here, how do people get to the major public transport trunk routes? They need to be able to walk or cycle to get there. So in a very sort of logical sort of format, they've gone, actually, well, we do really need to invest in cycling and walking. And they're not doing it in a small scale. They're doing it on a massive massive scale, uh, you know, sort of in the, in the thousands of kilometres of cycleways. So I think what we're noticing with cities all around the world, Paris has just done this, Odense, Oslo, there, there are cities all around the world where they're saying, look, we need to make a trade-off. And I'm going to be very controversial here. That trade-off is parking 
car parking. So I'm going to guess that uh, amongst our audience here, when you're living in a regional city or town, you would expect when you drive to go to the shop or the doctor or the library or the school, you kind of expect that you're going to be able to park right outside the front door. And that comes at a massive cost because when you then go to say, hey, look, we want to put a cycleway in or a footpath or a wider share path, and people say no because I'm going to lose my parking. Well, well and shopkeepers say, well, hang on, we're going to lose our customers. But actually, people who walk or ride spend more at the shops. So it's actually good for business. Um, and I can see Peter's got his, a bit of a smile on his face. But I just wanted to say, when we put that parking right up front and say we cannot lose any of it, what you're doing is you're literally voting with your feet. You're saying, it does not matter to me that my kids need to be able to walk to school. It does not matter to me that teenagers can't get around without being driven. It's more important for me to park right outside the front. And I think that's a real problem that we need to deal with. I want to come back to some international case studies because you've just come back from Europe and uh, you were tweeting the most incredible photos. It was like some sort of fantasy land, but it's reality about how people can change their transport habits if the city supports them to do so. Uh, Peter Burke, and then I'll come to you, Elliot. <laughs> uh, no, I was just going to say, there's a, a quote that we hear a lot is, uh, cars don't spend money, people do. And so there's lots of studies around, and the, uh, the main one we, I quote is out of Ligon Street, where a car space generates about $900 of economic activity. When that was transferred to bike parking, it averaged about $1,700 of economic activity in the same period of time across the day. So again, we come back to economics. And just one comment to Sarah. Unfortunately, I was the victim, the driver last night who drove around the block to get a much closer park outside the pub. But one thing about Bendigo, there's 11,500 or over 11,000 car parks in the centre of Bendigo. I think the number was 24,000 car trips into Bendigo every day. So obviously there's a, there's a shortage there. But if we go close to doubling the population and we double the number of cars, it'll cost $10,000 per car park every time we want a new one. So is that something that we can afford to invest in? Do we want to hand over more space to car parking and can we afford to so that people like me can drive around and get a car park outside the front door? It's kind of weird, isn't it, too, that we drive our cars quite a short distance and then we leave them all all day sitting stationary alone in a car park and then we do the same to get back home again. If only there were easier ways to get to work, then our cars could just stay at home and be quite comfortable, thank you very much. They'd have to be lonely in a car park in the middle of the city. Sorry, I'm anthropomorphising cars here. That's probably not a good idea. And also just to add, as Elliot said, over 50% of the trips in regional centres such as Bendigo are less than four and a half kilometres. So the engine doesn't even get warm by the time Time, we tuck it up and leave it for the day before we go to work and then get it out and roll it out again. We don't even give it a chance to warm up. But what's most important is that personal cars and commercial vehicles are the are an enormous contributor to global greenhouse gas emissions across the planet and here in Bendigo and here in Australia. So this is the conversation that we're having today. Uh, Elliot Fishman. The other thing that we haven't spoken about this morning that I think is really critical to all of the issues that we've mentioned, and that is density and the density of regional cities and what we're doing to accommodate future populations. Are we going to put them on the edges 
of on the margins of our uh, regional cities, or are we going to try and infill development and try and focus those new populations within more established areas of townships that already have better public transport networks, that have more walkable opportunities that are closer to people's destinations? And if we don't think about that, then we can't think about higher capacity public transport because we're not going to have the, pop the population to support those services. So we need to be talking about density in regional cities. So this is a crucial question for Bendigo and uh, all regional cities because one of the appeals of Bendigo is that people have large blocks, it's spread out, there's space, you're not living cheek by jowl as you are in a capital city. And so let's explore that a little further. That That's a real challenge, isn't it, uh, for, for a city like Bendigo? Sarah? Yeah, we've um, done quite a lot of analysis into what makes a place walkable. Things like trees and shade definitely help, but they're not fundamental. So if you do want a walkable neighbourhood, then in fact there are three ingredients, so it's quite simple. The first key ingredient is that you do need to have a mix of things to see and do. So they're things like having local shops, having a local doctor or a local library, definitely local schools and small parks. So you need a mix of these different things that are within a short 15 minute walk from home. That's really important. The second most important ingredient is that you've got a mix of housing type. Duplexes, semi-detached houses, maybe some townhouses, De definitely not talking about high rise. And you can have single dwellings amongst that, but you need a mix of housing type. And I think that's really important also for people who are downsizing, their kids have moved out, what are you gonna do with this big house? And that's slightly increased density, not high density. And then the third key ingredient is having lots of crossing opportunities. So you talked about that big highway that goes through town. It's really important to be able to easily cross the road through having crossings and also having quite small, what they call fine-grained networks. Um, but basically it just means that you've got quite small blocks, street blocks. Now, if you put those three ingredients together, that will account for more than half of all walking in a neighbourhood. So I think as um, you're getting that redevelopment occur or that new development occurring on the fringes of town, that's really important for council and developers to be pushing for those, think, those three ingredients to happen. I would also just add that the centre of Bendigo was developed way before cars. Right, it's a, a gold, gold rush era town. And so um, whilst you might not get that beautiful monumental architecture, the bones are there. But you might have to take some of the cars out uh, in order to increase that walkability. So I guess that's what I sort of wanted to add around that density question. We're getting fantastic questions coming in and, and something relevant to that from Brendan is, what would be the appetite for pilot programs to close streets around schools during school times to make it safer for active travel? Mary Beck, which is a council in, in Melbourne, does this. I'm happy to quickly um, try and answer that. So I imagine that, that there'd be furious opposition to it as soon as it was proposed. And then if they did it, after six months or 12 months, when you do the evaluation, people would be like, I can't remember what it was like before. It seems fine. So a lot of this is the pain is in the change. It's when you're talking about changing the configuration of a street or the uh, way in which a vehicle accesses uh, different destinations. That is always controversial. It's controversial not just in Australian townships, but also overseas as, as well, even in places like the Netherlands and, uh, and other parts of Northern Europe. And it takes courage to go, we can understand this opposition, but we're going to do it, but we're only going to do it as a trial and we'll turn it back to what it was before if people don't like it. Yeah. 
We do see around the world car-free days that had um, significant pushback when they started, and they are now transitioning into much wider areas. But the way that international cities are leading this conversation, Paris, Milan, wherever, they are reducing the ability for people to drive and the, the population pushed back, but are now celebrating. Sarah Stace, you've just come back from Europe and, and the Netherlands and Denmark and, and so you were tweeting just wonderful photos illustrating how cities have been, towns have been, neighbourhoods have been designed in a sense or have evolved to celebrate other ways of moving beyond the car. So describe some of the highlights for you from your travels. Yeah, what I found really interesting was, um, yes, they've got their separated cycleways in this city centre. And that's um, worked for shopkeepers as well? Th that works for shopkeepers as well. In fact, um, what was really interesting is watching deliveries being done. There's not a loading dock right outside the front of your shop or even out the back. So they might have to park around the corner and then they get the, the cart and they cart it along the nice smooth cycleway to get to the shop. So in terms of logistics, there are solutions out there. You've also got cargo bikes that do delivery that can fit quite, you know, a whole um, pallet on the back, for example. So there, that was really interesting from a logistics point of view. From a um, disability access point of view, again, we saw lots of people in wheelchairs on their electric wheelchairs or motorised scooters using the cycleways because it's nice and smooth. You're not having to go up and down curb ramps or go on a footpath and have tree roots and all those, all those obstacles actually disappear. But what I also found interesting was going through the suburban back streets, so not in the centre of town, but in, in the type of um, landscape that you see more of in Australian suburbs. And there, they're not putting in separated cycleways. What they have got is slow street speeds. So 30 ah. kilometres an hour as a maximum. Ah. Very, in this case, quite hefty fines if you, if you go over those speed limits. But the idea being, we can't afford to build cycleways everywhere. What we can afford to do is slow down the speed of cars so that they're a guest in the street and kids are out there playing, they're playing basketball and soccer and things like that. And um, the cars just drive slowly on every single suburban street with housing. That was fascinating. And as a result, you've got more kids playing in the street. Um, you've got more people interacting with each other on the street and just chatting to neighbours. You know, there's lots of cars, there's lots of parking. All those things are still present, but you've got other life in the street. And as a result, you do see people, um, seniors out riding bikes. You see teenagers going off to sport on their own, being independent. And that was what was really fascinating. I think that we really need to make that major, major step change down to 30 kilometres an hour, not just for bike riders, but for our kids, uh, for our seniors and elderly, for anyone who wants to walk. Major adjustment uh, for a low density city like Bendigo though, uh, and that's a real changing of minds, isn't it? And a, a, a making and a breaking of habits. Yeah, I mean, look, Hands up, audience. Do you remember when we went from 60 to 50 as the default urban speed limit in Australia? It was in the early 90s. Did, did you get consulted on that? Did you get asked? No, it just happened, right? So we accepted that. It, it, you know, people didn't like it at the time, but we adjusted. And I wasn't a driver then, but um, I watched my parents doing it. And then, um, so people don't like it up front. But I think we just, you know, it, we want to have vision zero. We want to achieve climate goals. We want our kids to be able to walk on the street. 
um, at, so the whole of Wales, for example, has gone to 30 kilometres an hour, an entire country. But the way it works is that you've got your local street is 30 kilometres an hour, and then once you get to an arterial road, which is usually no more than three minutes away, then you can drive faster. And Bendigo, one goal that's been set of, as part of uh, the climate collaboration that's happening here is a 30-30-30 split. So a third of trips involving some kind of active transport like walking or riding or e-scooters, uh, one third by public transport and one third by electric vehicles by 2030. How do we realise a combination so that uh, everyone's got a choice to take the sustainable transport form that best suits them at a particular time of their life or a particular time of their week. Elliot Fishman, is there a sort of, is there a, a conversation about multiple modes of transport? How do, you get, how do you resource that to happen? I think what we can do is look at what's world's best practice and look at small cities that are similar size to uh, either where Bendigo is now or where it might be in the coming years. And we mentioned uh, uh, Groningen in the Netherlands uh, a few moments ago, and I'll be there in a couple of weeks leading a, a study tour. What they did in the early 1970s was they overnight said, you can't drive through the centre of town. You can drive into the centre of town, but then you have to go back the way you came. And they did it really simply with putting huge boulders in the centre of the street, and they had uh, people with a huge bucket of flowers, and they gave motorists the flower uh, when they got to the roadblock and said, okay, sorry, you're going to have to go back the way you came. And they knew that by giving flowers, it's very difficult to get angry with somebody if they're giving you a flower. And after a couple of years of running that system, they did an evaluation, and hadn't achieved the goals that they had set out to achieve. And so they had two choices. They could either go back the way they were and remove the boulders and let drivers go through the centre of town uh, like they used to, or they could take it even further and do more roadblocks and more innovative uh, transport solutions. And they decided to go with the more innovative transport solutions. And so now 60% of trips in Groningen are done by bicycle and it's a world leader and so people like me take international delegations to Groningen to take a look at what's happening. And the other thing that they do is they integrate different forms of sustainable transport. So they have great walking environments around their train stations. They have dedicated bicycle facilities that link in with the public transport network. And they can also allow bikes to be carried on uh, public transport uh, vehicles. Brilliant, so it's all connected. It's all, it's all connected, it's all integrated. They also have, and this is something that's gonna be challenging for, for some communities, they have very strict parking management. So you have to pay for parking almost everywhere and they have um, fairly strict regime in terms of permits and it's not easy to park there. So, and, and that's important because you'll never get to 30% of trips by active transport and 30% of trips by, or a third of trips by public transport unless you uh, structure a parking regime that manages car parking demand or manages car use, uh, then you won't get to that third, a third, a third mode target that, that you've got. A place like Bendigo and other regional cities, one really simple thing that you could do is on your buses, put bike racks on the front of buses. And I know that a lot of places in Victoria, and I know that the ACT has been doing this for over a decade. And the, the great thing about that is, it's not that you put your bike on the bus every day, it's that you've got that safety net that you can do that if you need to. So if you're a new cyclist, you're concerned that you might get a flat tire or your chain comes off, and you're not sure how to put it back on, you can always put your bike on the front of the bus to get to where you need to go.
And I want to round now, finally, as we wrap, uh, back to the local, Peter Burke uh, of We Bike Australia and Bendigo, um, Bike Bendigo. Um, how are you hearing this conversation? How do you imagine? So in three years' time, Bendigo is going to be hosting the Commonwealth Games. You will be uh, uh, amongst other regional cities in, in Victoria. You're going to be there on the world stage, accommodating people from around the region and beyond from the Commonwealth. What do you, what, what do you think could make everything that we've heard today possible? Clearly, investment from state governments and local governments what needs to happen to enable this vision for a zero emissions transport system in a town like Bendigo? It actually is a simple answer, and that is leadership. Uh, the bike plan, as an example, has got $140 million worth of um, bike infrastructure over the next 30 years, $40 million over 10. The plans are there. We've listened to two fantastic experts with Sarah and Elliot talking about Australia and international best practice. We know what actually has to happen. We've got Commonwealth Games in three years, or 2026. We, this is the opportunity to internationally showcase Bendigo as a world leader. It is the opportunity to do things. We, we know we're doing the centre of Bendigo is going to be car free for a period. It is our chance to test, to trial, to experience. If we want to be, if Bendigo wants to be a truly leading city and not just a country town in the future, the leaders need to make the difficult decisions and say we are going to invest in both the programs and the infrastructure that actually provide the options for tourists, for locals to actually move around our towns and not be reliant upon a private motor vehicle. So Commonwealth Games is our target and that's our chance to do things and then keep it going from then. The Ronnie reality is though that you have to actually think over decades outside of the political short-term political cycle. You need to have a, a shared bipartisan vision for what could be possible for a town. Without a doubt. What we've got is this situation where we've got a lot of plans being developed and a lot of structures over a long period of time. We've actually got to do something around them, action plans, and deliver on what those plans actually are. What do you reckon? Let's thank Sarah Stace, Elliot Fishman, and Peter Burke, and to the fantastic team who have organised today's uh, climate summit here in Bendigo. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to the panel, Sarah Stace, Director of Cities with the consultancy firm WSP Global, Elliot Fishman, founder of the consultancy The Sensible Transport Institute, Peter Burke, Executive Officer with We Ride Australia and General Manager of Bicycle Industries Australia. Big thanks to Ian McBurney and the team at the City of Greater Bendigo Climate Collaboration for inviting us at Big Ideas to be part of their Bendigo Climate Summit. And we love to hear about events you're planning. Well in advance, just head to the Big Ideas homepage, scroll right down to the Contact Us heading and click through. Send us a message. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Big thanks to the Big Ideas team. More from us next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.